Each one of those songs so appropriate uh, to prepare our hearts for communion, which we'll be taking at the end of the service. The theme that we have before us uh, this morning is not specifically the cross, though in one sense all things that we encounter in Scripture can lead us by uh, different paths to the work of the Lord on the cross. But we come now to the seventh commandment, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. The seventh commandment is simply this, you shall not commit adultery. The Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 addresses this commandment, and as he is known to do, takes it deeper, applies it further than we would if left to ourselves. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus speaks, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's bow in prayer. Father, left to ourselves, none of us would seek you as you deserve to be sought, and none of us would be able to unfold and understand the depths of the commandments that you have given to us. Oh, I pray that in these moments that we have your word open before us, you would give us a heart to seek you, to flee from any known sin in our life, and to listen and to hear, and in hearing that we would have faith, and our faith would produce obedience in us to your word. We pray that you'd give us this by your spirit, and we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. As we address this serious topic of adultery, and by association with that, the topics of marriage and sex, I don't think that I have really any need to sensationalize this topic by enumerating the infinite permutations of sexual immorality that destroy, undermine, and devalue marriage. Our society is so rife with them that you only have to open your eyes and look around and you will see the perverse sexualization of our culture everywhere. From commercialization in which sex sells to the redefinitions of marriage that are 
only at really the whim of the sinful human heart, to the casual approach to sexual encounters. You only need to look for a brief moment and you see that our world is replacing God's good design with something lesser, something cheaper, something harmful, and ultimately something damning. But perhaps more significantly, I don't need to enumerate all of the perversions that are surrounding us, because I think most of the people here have been touched in some way to see the personal damage and ramifications of sexual immorality and adultery that have come to hit home in your own life or in the life of those who are near to you. Few, if any of us, are unable to speak personally about the far-reaching effects of sexual immorality and the devastating ramifications of adultery. We've seen lives destroyed by it, relationships broken, children harmed, God dishonored through the misuse and undermining of His design for human sexuality and marriage. God, in His great mercy, wisdom, and grace, gives this seventh commandment that is so simple. You shall not commit adultery. Not to lay the shackles of restraint on us to steal joy from any human, but rather to allow humans to flourish within the design for which He made human sexuality. The seventh commandment forbids adultery. And if I were to define it based on effect, on the effect of adultery, I would say that the seventh commandment is a prohibition against the ripping apart of the physical bond of marriage between a husband and wife that comes through one spouse uniting sexually with another person who is not their spouse. Adultery rips apart a relationship that is intended to be glued together. In the Old Testament, adultery always involves marriage. The seventh commandment does not directly make reference to sexual encounters among the unmarried, although the rest of the Old Testament and certainly the New Testament speaks about sexual immorality, pornea, in the New Testament, which encompasses any permutation of sexual experience that comes outside of the confines of biblical marriage. But in this case, adultery is specifically the breaking of the marriage bond. It addresses a man taking a woman sexually who is not his wife, but is rather another man's wife. Leviticus 18 verse 20 says and defines adultery this way, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. 
and so make yourself unclean with her. It is taking a spouse who belongs to someone else and taking them as your own. The classic example is King David. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that well-known passage of David and Bathsheba. It says in 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and the servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. David took a woman not his own. He tries to conceal this sin, murders Bathsheba's husband. He thinks that he has it under wraps, but God knows and sends the prophet Nathan. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is a brilliant strategy, because David responds. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. It was adultery. He took what was not his as though it had belonged to him. Not that Bathsheba was some bit of property owned by Uriah. It was so much more. It was an intimate, personal, lovely relationship that was meant to be between husband and wife. And David ripped that apart by taking Bathsheba for himself. 
Adultery is so serious that as a nation, Israel was given the responsibility to punish adultery. And the punishment, Leviticus 20 verse 10, describes it this way. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Solomon addresses his son in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, he actually takes almost three chapters to speak to his son about the dangers of adultery. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, he begins speaking to his son. He says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Solomon builds this up as he speaks to his son, charging him effectively, you need to listen seriously to what your mother and I have to say to you. Sometimes parents do this where they make this big build-up to what they're about to say. They don't make the point. They precede the point by this huge and extravagant, elaborate seriousness about what they're about to say. And the kid's probably thinking, great, what did I do this time? But it shows the seriousness of what has to be said. And here is what Solomon has to say to his son. Verse 24 The reason that he's telling him about the importance of instruction is to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest? And his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Solomon is charging his son about the folly of adultery. He says it's easy. It only costs a loaf of bread to get a prostitute, but it will ultimately cost you your life. Because if the husband of this woman that you go to, finds out about this, he is going to thirst for your blood and no amount of payoffs will satisfy him. He goes on in chapter 7, verse 19. This is recounting what an adulterous woman might say. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her 
as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Do you hear the urgency of this? Scattered Round the adulteress's house are effectively the bones of all those whom she has consumed. Take heed. It's a high price to pay for a few moments of fleeting pleasure. And yet, as we've seen with any of the commandments that God has given, the prohibition is there. Yes, do not commit adultery, but there is a A positive underpinning to that prohibition. Paul in Romans 13, 8 through 10 captures that. It's not just that you focus on what you are not to do. There is also a positive component of this. Romans 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe nothing, or owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Is the person who lacks love who sees somebody and wants to take them for their selfish gratification with no concern about their well-being or if they are married for the well-being of their spouse. That is a completely unloving attitude. Whereas if you truly love another person, you will look at them and you will desire the best for them and want what is good. And so of course you're not going to do any harm to them like take their wife And so love is the fulfilling of the law. So this prohibition to not commit adultery is really completed when you love your neighbor as yourself. At the time that we have left, I want to think with you about the seventh commandment from the, the different topics that it really addresses They really undergird it. Because this topic can't be addressed without addressing the topic of marriage and the topic of sex and the topic of the heart. The seventh commandment is about adultery, which incorporates marriage. And while marriage is more than sex, it is certainly not less. And so the seventh commandment is about marriage and sex. But sex is more than just the physical act. It incorporates the heart. And so the seventh commandment is about marriage, sex, and the heart. And we need to think about these things in order to make sure that we are prepared to know how to keep this commandment. So first, marriage. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, is asked by the Pharisees, is it 
lawful to divorce your wife. And as Jesus responds to this, he gives an answer that is so brilliant that it doesn't just address the topic of divorce, he gives a an understanding of what marriage is that will address really any topic that would ever touch marriage. So Jesus responds to them in verse 5 in response to the fact that Moses had allowed a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus' understanding of marriage begins with God. It's God's design. He's the one who has thought it up. He's the one who brings together male and female. He's the one who made male and female. Really, our, our total misunderstandings of marriage today begin because we try to remove God as the originator of marriage. And when you remove Him, really, it can become anything that you want it to be. But as a matter of fact, it is rooted in God because it is God who made it. And He made it because He made male and female. And they are complements to each other. Despite current cultural conditions, male and female are in fact quite different and distinct. They're complementary in their design. And in this complementary way that God made male and female, He designed it so that the two would come together as one in a unique relationship where they leave what formerly was the preeminent relationship in their life, relationship from parent to child, and they leave that in order to engage in this new relationship of marriage that is now distinct and new and unlike any other relationship. And in this, the husband is to leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This holding fast implies an intimate Steady, full of love, attachment to his wife. And as the husband clings to his wife in this way, they become one flesh. The two become one. This is more than a physical union, though again, it's not less than that. But it brings together two lives in such an intimacy that to think of them as apart from each other is almost incomprehensible. I remember one couple that we knew that had been married for many, many years and, and uh, they encountered serious health problems and looked like one of them was going to pass away and they were just kind of befuddled because it, they said it, it had always been me and her, her and me. From like first grade, they knew each other. And they just couldn't even think of life apart And God so unites the two together that he says, let not man separate. Marriage is rooted in a 
covenant. Malachi chapter 2 finds the Lord speaking to apostate Israel who had been adulterous towards him, but also in their spiritual adultery, they had been committing physical adultery. And the Lord charges them and says, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The two become one through the exchanging of a promise to be faithful to each other. I was at a wedding just yesterday, and I had the, um, the joy of getting to see uh, two become one. And the uniqueness of this is that all that happened in that moment to transition them from unmarried to married, all that really happened was the speaking of words. Marriage is so unique compared to every other human relationship. I mean, kids inherit their parents. They don't get a choice in it. You don't get to look around and say, I want them as my parents. You're just, you get what you got. Siblings, same thing. You can't go and exchange one for another no matter how much you might like to. Friends usually come together by common interests. And while some friends come and go, you have some that endure longer than others. That's not really a, a union that comes together by any kind of formality. It's more of the rooting of common interests. Also, bosses and colleagues that come together sometimes by maybe a signed formal contract, but you can let it go and move on, and you have common career paths that sometimes diverge. But among human relationships, the relationship between man and wife is utterly distinct and unlike any other. It is more intimate, more devoted, to be more loving, more committed. As I saw the two yesterday exchange vows, I had the great privilege of being able to look past them. Actually, I didn't do the vows. I was there just to offer a blessing. But as I looked past them, I was able to see in the second row my parents, who have been married for 51 years, who were able to come to the wedding just barely with all their health problems. And they've been through thick and thin Mountains and valleys, dark and light, and I see the beginning, and I see the end. Marriage is the commitment of one to another that until death do us part. As it used to go in the vows, I plight thee my troth, which means I pledge you, my faithfulness. And it's a promise, a commitment. I am with you, and I am yours and yours alone. Marriage, in all of its glory, in its uniqueness, brings together the, the great joy of companionship, of going through life together, 
a loving relationship between a man and a woman. It also has the purpose of procreation, which does not mean that if a couple is childless, which I know can bring great grief to those who experience that, that their marriage is unsuccessful or unfulfilled. It just means generally God designed man and woman to come together for the purpose of procreation. Marriage is more than procreation. It's not defined by that, so a marriage can be successful without it. But generally, and really exclusively, the filling of the earth is to happen through the union of husband and wife and the gift of children given within that marriage. Marriage extends beyond companionship and procreation. It also extends to paint a picture, a living picture, of a greater reality which Paul captures in Ephesians 5 where he talks about husbands and wives and he charges husbands in Ephesians 5.28 that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he talks about how a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says in his conclusion in verse 32 that this mystery is profound and I am saying... It refers to Christ and the church. So as you have a husband who lays down his life for his wife and loves her with a sacrificial, devoted kind of love, that kind of love is representing the kind of love that Christ has exclusively for his people in the church. And so marriages are to be this kind of walking painting of Christ and the church. Which, by the way, husbands, should make you consider seriously your responsibility and privilege of loving your wife as Christ has loved his church in an exclusive, steadfast, enduring, sacrificial kind of way. So marriage is something designed by God. He's designed it to be complementary between male and female. It's a covenant, a lifelong promise that produces companionship, physical intimacy, procreation, and ultimately a picture of Christ's love for his bride. Marriage is good. And yet, as we hear this, it almost sounds a bit like a a fairy tale to many. Like, okay, great, but really... Some of you might think my marriage was a disaster. Some of you think my marriage is a disaster. Some of you think I would have loved to have gotten married and didn't get to get married. The corruption of sin touches every last part of the human experience. The worst kind of rift that can come to a marriage is that rift when is infiltrated by somebody who doesn't belong. And that's adultery. And God, in his mercy and kindness, gives that seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery because he knows what marriage is supposed to be. He knows what it is by design. And he gives that to prohibit people from ruining it. But of course we ruin it. God in his redemption 
can bring from the ashes something good if you are willing to submit to him and his ways. That's where the goodness is. It's in the ways of the Lord. I can't address every corruption that comes and every heartache that comes, but you must know that God is for good marriages. need to move on to the topic of sex because adultery corrupts marriage through illicit sex. And I need to also say as we address this topic that it has been my desire and prayer that I address it tactfully and carefully as it ought to be addressed, but it must be addressed. It seems like all our culture talks about or thinks or is about almost all the time is this topic of sex. Our culture is so sexualized that it's trying to infiltrate the innocence of children. And the culture is speaking so loudly, so flamboyantly, all of the time, and so enticingly, that if Christians remain silent, then those who need to be taught about this subject are still going to hear about it, but not from us, but from the world. And so you can't be quiet about it. Don't be a prude on this subject, which is kind of the reputation that conservative Christians have, that we think it's better to run away from the topic of sex and just ignore it, rather than realize that we have actually the realization of what this is. I am convinced that despite all of the sexualization of our culture, very few people have any idea what they're handling when they handle sex. And when God has spoken about something, we should feel free to speak about it. God, as a matter of fact, has devoted an entire book of his Bible to the topic of romantic love within the context of marriage. That's the book of Song of Solomon. And if you've ever opened that up and read it, you might be tempted to close it and put it under some cupboard somewhere so that your kids don't find it. And yet it's there. God's not ashamed of it. It's His design. Song of Solomon speaks in poetic way about romantic love. Song of Solomon 5 verse 1 says, I came to my garden... My sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. We also see the book of Proverbs, devoting many Proverbs, but specifically chapters 5, 6, and 7 to the subject. And in the setting when Solomon is addressing his children his son, about staying away from the prostitute and the adulteress. He also gives them this instruction in Proverbs 5, verse 15 to 20. He says, drink water from your own cistern. Speaking of their wife. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear... A graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? You see? Scripture speaks plainly. Puritans. Say that word and you probably think of Thanksgiving, people dressed in stuffy outfits who um, have no personality whatsoever. It's kind of the characterization or mischaracterization of the Puritans. And yet, the Puritans also get the kind of connotation that they would have thought of sex as taboo and something you don't talk about and just the most prudish people who ever lived. They came in the line of the reformers who were coming out of middle-aged Catholicism that would have looked at sex as like a, a necessary evil for the advancement of the human race, but really the holy people would think of it as something as vile and low and base, and you need to be celibate and completely stay away from that. And in the vein of the reformers who started to put aside middle-aged Roman Catholicism, the Puritans developed a robust theory and purpose of marriage and sex that was biblical. They believed wholeheartedly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that sex was a marital duty. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Leland Riken, who is somewhat of a Puritan scholar, gathers together some quotes from the Puritans regarding that text. And the Puritans say, it is a commandment to yield this duty of sexual intercourse And not to do it is a breach of the commandment. Neither husband nor wife can without grievous sin deny sexual intercourse to the other. To deny sexual union is to deny a due debt and to give Satan great advantage. That's the Puritans saying that. But they saw it as more than just utilitarian to steer clear of sexual immorality. They also recognized the blissful joy that can come. They said marriage was to possess a, quote, ardent love, with husband and wife yielding to each other with hearty affection. Another Puritan declared that married couples should engage in sex with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully, that they may joyfully give due benevolence one to the other, as two musical instruments rightfully fitted do make a most pleasant and sweet harmony in a well-tuned consort. They weren't ashamed. They realized God's good gift. I recall somebody saying, I don't remember who or where I heard this, but they said this, sex is God's gift. It is his wedding gift. Sex is to be a a glue that knits together people who have made a promise to each other to love forever 
or for the rest of their life in an exclusive way. And sex becomes the physical expression of that oneness, of that love, of that devotedness. It's such a powerful component of the marital experience where husband and wife are joined together really in body and heart. And because marriage is an exclusive relationship, unlike any other relationship, sex is exclusively reserved for husband and wife. It is the moment of greatest vulnerability, giving all that you have and are to the person that you are with. And people throw it away and cheapen it by giving themselves to people they hardly know and have made no promises to. What a horrible cheapening of a good gift God has given to bring delight and joy to a couple that has made a lifelong promise. It's only in marriage where sex is safe and good and loving. In premarital counseling, I'll always ask those that I'm speaking with, are you ready to have kids? And the response only, almost universally is, no, never ready to have kids. Well, you have to be. If you're going to be married and you're going to enjoy the physical union, God intended children to enter through that. And I'm not talking about any kind of child protection, not child protection. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is the trouble you get in talking about this. Couples have to understand why God gave this gift and realize the good gift that God has given because this is the venue through which children are to enter into the world into a loving, good, secure, safe relationship. And we talk about this like we talk about marriage and you think, yeah, right. Because sex has been so corrupted by our sinfulness. But the worst of the worst, I think, is when what is meant to be between husband and wife as a securing of the bond of love that they have is broken by a spouse going outside of the confines of that and giving that to somebody who is not their spouse. And it wrecks the trust. It wrecks the pledge of faithfulness. It just throws marriage into a blender. Not to say that couples have not recovered from this or it's the sin of all sins, but you can understand why it is so good that God gave the seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery. Because he loves marriage. And he gives sex as a good gift not to be thrown into the gutter.
talked about marriage, talked about sex. Finally, just briefly, we need to talk about the heart. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus draws the topic of adultery to bear upon the heart. Since marriage is the close, intimate, loving, lifelong relationship between husband and wife, and sex is the physical expression of that love that consummates the joy between a husband and wife as they give to each other themselves, I might be tempted to think that any violation of this is purely physical. Some people would think, well, if I don't go and take somebody else's wife, I haven't committed adultery. Jesus says again in Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God has never been about just mere external conformity to rules and regulations. He's always after your heart. In the case of marriage, the ideal husband and wife would be the one who lays down their own selfish preferences, their own conveniences, their own ambitions for the good of their spouse. From sunrise to sunset, from vows to death, they are to love their neighbor as themselves and the closest neighbor they have as their spouse. And if one of those partners may not be going out and physically committing an act of adultery, but is looking beyond the bounds at a woman or at a man and desiring them in their heart, Jesus says, you are guilty of adultery. Even if you're unmarried, you don't have a spouse that you're violating a vow that you've made to, if you are lusting after somebody who is not your spouse and just imaging them as some object for your own sexual pleasure, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself and you have pornea in your heart. Jesus is after the heart. It's not just, have you committed the act? It's the question, is your heart pure and loving? Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the seventh commandment. It's given for our good. It's given for our protection. It's given for our safety. It's given because we have a God who loves marriage, gives sex as a great gift, and desires purity in our hearts. Let's pray.
Father, I think that probably everyone here at one time or another or in a time to come will have had a heart of impurity and we violated your commandment and we deserve your judgment. Father, we thank you that you've given the Lord Jesus Christ to take the curse of the law on his own shoulders, to be a curse for us, that we might be set free. Father, I pray for those of us who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would lead us to a life of purity and holiness in this area. And for those who are feeling enslaved to the sin, oh, Father, I pray that you would set them free. Thank you that we have this opportunity to remember what Christ has done for us in the taking of communion. May you bless this time and refresh our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.